Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pot Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. This episode of Talking uh, Transformation is somewhat different from the preceding three episodes that we've uh, presented. It's not looking at a conceptual plan at a national scale. It's not looking at uh, conceptual development uh, corridors or, or housing developments that have been uh, put on the ground in some of our cities. It's looking at the issue of uh, violence in our communities. It's presented in a, a month where we have seen the army being deployed in some of our areas in Cape Town to support the communities there, support the policing initiatives uh, in some of the gang-infested gang, uh, areas where violence has uh, sadly become very much the norm. I sat with Jana Elhor, who is uh, visiting Cape Town from the World Bank, based in Washington, D.C. I've never met her before, which is again different from the preceding guests that we've had, who I've known for many, many years. Uh, Jana, I, I basically met this week and was quite taken by her own story of uh, moving from war-torn Lebanon through to Iraq and uh, basically traversing a whole range of conflict-ridden areas. Uh, she has a very compelling story to tell. She is contributing in a very direct way to communities all over the world who have really been through um, trauma and violence uh, in very, very moving ways. She considers and reflects on her own movements and early uh, period, moving from uh, war-torn areas and ultimately uh, finding her own peace and uh, uh, skill set to help in the peacemaking initiatives around the country. She also reflects on some of the work uh, and um, uh, initiatives that have been developed uh, here in and around the Western Cape. She'll talk about things like the Shot Spotter uh, initiative and how that has contributed or tried to uh, understand some of the, uh, the challenges that these communities are facing and what's been done um, to, to support uh, those uh, communities. She was also kind enough to reflect on some of the uh, unique uh, offerings that South Africa has had, specifically in respect of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, or the TRC, which was obviously so important uh, post-1994 in trying to come to terms with this uh, country's violence and uh, history. As with each of the preceding uh, podcasts. I found it absolutely riveting in terms of the perspectives that she shares, some of the lessons learned, and again a message of, of, of hope, even in a time which uh, has seen such a tra tra trauma in our communities and the need for this intervention. Uh, please listen and enjoy uh, her, her message, and please feel free to leave some comments on the Anchor podcast platform. Let's hear from Jana Elhor. I'm here in Cape Town. I'm with Jana Elhor. Yes. 
who is visiting us uh, with one of the World Bank Group delegation. And you've spent uh, some time with us. It's not the first time you've been in South Africa. No. And I, I just would be interested to get your thoughts. Returning back into this space, what is it, you're, what is it you see? What is it you're thinking uh, about the South African uh, space and yeah. Cape Town? Well, I don't know. It's, I should say, like, every time I land in South Africa, I always have a huge smile on my face. Uh, so this tells me a lot about this place, how much it makes me happy just to be here. Um, I think it's uh, the reason why I insisted on my name, Jana, not Yana, is because it's, a, it's an Arabic word. It means to harvest. Uh, it's a verb. My dad was very keen that my first name would be a verb. It's an active verb. And my last name is Al-Hur, which means the free. So his thought was about harvesting freedom um, because I was born during the war in Lebanon. and was a very long civil war um, um, and he wanted his kid to be harvesting freedom um, because I was born during also the, the Israeli invasion of, of Lebanon. Uh, but the reason why I'm talking about that is because for me the memory of South Africa goes to me when I was a child where my mom would put me in front, had put me in front of the TV to see Mandela coming out of prison and telling me, just see the sheet. This is, they were able to change their fate. We'll do it here in Lebanon as well one day. Um, Lebanon continues to be sensitive. I know things in South Africa sometimes are sensitive, but I cannot not land here with a big smile on my face because all these memories come rushing to me. And, and I see the similarities between here and Lebanon. Now I live in the US, but I'm still I only as of as of late, but I still see the similarities a lot between here and Lebanon and a lot of other countries that are going through transition, whether from to a democracy, whether from war, um, that you always see that the 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 biggest that what always puts a smile on your face are the people, their resilient attitude and nature that they want to make things better. Um, so what I see here, I do see always happy people who want to live and they want a better future for themselves. Um, we just need to align the politics with the economic development with a, a good narrative for us or for everyone here to, whether also I'm talking about Lebanon as well, because I have that in the back of my mind, um, with a narrative that actually will push everybody towards a, a positive future. A positive and peaceful future, not so. A peaceful future, amen to that. <laughs> I mean, you've traveled the world. Looking, looking at your CV, you've been around. You've, you say born in Lebanon. Um, you've been in Pakistan. You've been in Afghanistan, if I understood correctly. Mm. You've spent some time teaching in and around uh, the USA. You're based there, say, with the World Bank at the moment. Um, you've been to some of the most troubled, uh, most uh, conflict-torn areas mm. uh, around the world. For the benefit of our listeners, maybe you can give us an overview of some of those travels and some of those observations. What What's common, what has been quite unique to different places? Yeah. Um, so just to add a little bit of complexity to that, I'm half Lebanese, half Iraqi, so it doesn't get easier. <laughs> um, the best way to, 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 to describe my past is like I... I, I was born in Lebanon and then I spent the first probably 10, 13 years of my life going between Lebanon and Iraq because Iraq was safer. So we'd leave Lebanon as soon as things get worse and we'd go to Iraq and then the war in Iraq. And so after the Kuwait war in, in, in 1991, and so then we stayed in Lebanon. And so um, it is, uh, it is, um, <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's not in, let's say, 
it's an interesting it's an interesting upbringing i always thought it's normal so like i i i, I people say oh you've been through a lot of wars i was like no actually it's just so it's an experience. That's the way it is. It's an experience. Um, and I think this is what pushes me to work. I work with the World Bank and I work on development, but I work mainly in fragile, in fragile conflict-affected and violence-affected contexts and countries. And, commu- so I've, and communities and neighborhoods. And communities and neighborhoods. So I've worked in Afghanistan and Pakistan on their conflict and fragility aspects, but I've also worked on Maldives and the Pacific on violence prevention and, and working mostly with young people uh, with marginalized communities, uh, thinking about what are policies, but also programs that could bring um, people closer to a better future uh, or, or a peaceful future, I should say. And I would say the similarities in all these places is that everyone says that their context is very specific and it's very different than another country. But I have to say that Yes, history, narrative, the problems that come with that are different. But I think there's a commonality that often the problems, the root causes of those problems are very similar to each other, or there are a lot of stories to be learned and taught from each other. And so we often talk about the uniqueness of one context because um, there isn't another place like this context, but when you go drill to the problems, when you identify the root causes, you see a lot of those similarities. And then, and then this is when you see that hope can happen because you've seen it in other places where, where these root causes or these problems have been, have, have been overcome mm. through programs, through policies. Um, and so, my 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 takeaway from my travel is n- to understand the context to understand the history spend time to understand the culture uh, spend time understanding the problems and what are the root causes and start thinking of ways of how to bring different views together to with the aim with one objective is like how do we start thinking about a peaceful sustainable not only economic development, but an economic future, basically. I mean, you know, crime and violence uh, is underpinning uh, a number of our communities here. Uh, in the week that you, you're here with us, we've seen uh, the army go into some of our areas here in Cape Town because of that uh, crime and violence, which is obviously quite a worrying and uh, uh, a real challenge, mm-hmm. not only for the communities who are faced with that, um, but in terms of the what, what is the future for those communities. Um, particularly with the sort of military intervention that we're seeing, or at least in a peacekeeping uh, role to support the conventional police. We have a history here in South Africa of violence and systemic abuse. goes back into the legislation of apartheid and what it did to our communities. And you already touched on that, the sort of link between the historic trauma and the, and the uh, contemporary behavior. And almost on that contemporary, we can, we can look to the future and say, well, it's likely that 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 violence will play itself out because mm. of such a, a conflict. Again, any, any further thoughts on, on, on that? Well, you touch a very good point that trauma stays, right? So uh, violence, violence is in our, in our daily lives. It's, like with, it's the intensity of it that differs, right? And the exposure to it that differs. And we need to understand that violence is not only the... the 
the activity of one person who is perpetrating the violence and everybody else is a victim. That person ha is committing the crime because also of a context, because of the structural issues that are moving that person or uh, incentivizing that person to commit the crime. Uh, also, it's important to look at the victims of that perpetrator. So punishing that perpetrator and, and as a way to end the violence does not create any peaceful outcomes because you have victims who have been affected by that. That perpetrator probably has a community that comes from. Maybe that perpetrator is acting on behalf of the community or a group. So violence could not be taken away from, it cannot just be given to an individual, it has to be understood from an individual, a community, a society, an institution perspective. Also needs to be understood from a, a life cycle perspective. Um, me, by starting this conversation today and giving you an example of me growing up during the war, mm. the war still lives with, within me and it's impacting a lot my decision. Mm. Um, and I'm assuming if a, if a child is impacted by some type of violence, I, what are the impacts of that, of those act, of, of that event on that person when they grow up? Whether not only by committing violence, but also making life choices, um, uh, choosing education, making, uh, uh, choosing perception, how to view the world, how to engage with the world. Um, now we talk a lot when we train with young people, we talk about a growth mindset. If you don't address where their past of being impacted by the violence, by, the, by even the fragility of the society that they live with, they cannot think about a growth mindset because they don't know what their options are and what they could accomplish within their own skills or within their own capacity, those options that we that could be the result of this growth mindset. Um, such a limited frame sort of yeah. that you're working within. Yeah, so um, that's uh, those that's there isn't a better way of of uh, of, say, of looking at violence of like reducing violence rather than thinking about it from a prevention, rather than thinking about it as a response. So having the army being deployed here is only a response to the violence, because what will happen when the army is not here? And what are the activities that the army will create, the, or the army will lead, uh, and will they actually, what would be their repercussions, and would they actually reduce the violence? And so those are questions that we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking about crime and violence in, this, in the context of South Africa and many others. And it's only that mind shift when we go from just the, pr the response part and saying crime and violence is only a response, so it's only the responsibility of the police or the metropolitan police in the city, to start thinking about it from a prevention perspective, that it's a multi-stakeholder issue, that it's not only the Ministry of Police, it it touches upon different layers of the government. It goes all Education, the way. Education, health. Exactly. Early and childhood, etc. Exactly. And also the different levels of the government. So it's not only you need the national policy, you need the provincial policy, but at the same time, you need to work on the smallest level available on the neighborhood mm -hmm. policy. You need to think of here in the context of South Africa, I would say, let's look at precincts, let's look at neighborhoods because those neighborhoods come with identity. 
And if you can change that identity that into a positive, peaceful identity through socioeconomic activities, through social services, that will help change the culture of that neighborhood or the activ- the, the prevalence of violence in those neighborhoods. And, and we'll, we'll, we do have evidence that we have spillover effect. One neighborhood goes to another one, to another one. And just like effect, Exactly. Right. Just like how the violence trickled in into some neighborhoods that used to be very uh, peaceful. Cr- Crime-free, etc. Yeah. What I found interesting in, in, the, in this week is we've heard of this idea of the uh, differentiated levels of violence or the structural, there was a cultural and there was this idea of direct violence mm-hmm. that was discussed uh, actually yesterday. Any thoughts about that sort of framing mechanism that was utilized? That's a, no, it's a very, so yesterday we had a trip. We went to visit the Violence Prevention uh, Urban Upgrading Program in Kailisha to learn from uh, what they've done, right? So basically the Violence Prevention Urban Upgrading Program was able through a partnership program with the government, with actually the local municipality and with the communities to develop an urban upgrading program uh, that, first of all, did the mapping of of violence, of hotspots of violence, but also understood what are the typologies of violence, and understood that violence is not only homicide, but also its lack of services, lack of employment, it's the consistency of being excluded from job opportunities that exist far, far away in the city. Let's say, for example, without the availability of transport or with the very costly transport. so when we from from this experience in Kailisha, we were able to see the different type of types of violence, and you understand that you need that typology to understand that the activities need to be differentiated. So you need a better policing, that's true for direct violence, but you also you need better educational outcome. You need mentoring to young people. You need support to people who have been impacted by the violence and and they have psychosocial issues that prevent them from joining an educational institution or joining a job. I heard that uh, we've been listening to a lot of conversation about young people. We have more than 25% of young people in the in Cape Town that are not engaged in employment, nor in education, nor in training. Yeah, and it would be very important to understand why is that, right? Uh, why is this marginalization happening? And so this is why the typology of these of the different types of, of, of violence is needed to differentiate the activities because there isn't a one solution that fits all. Yeah. Violence is the outcome, is a, the iceberg tip of a multitude of factors. When you have a multitude of factors, we know the answer is not one thing. And the responsibility is not one stakeholder. The responsibility is, is that multiple stakeholders and starts with the individual as well. And a lot of... Um, we can talk about, if we have time, we can talk about programs where I've worked on violence prevention, specifically on working on the na- neighborhood level, um, specifically working uh, on, on mapping the violence, identifying the typology, and how we created a, lo- a culture of peace in the neighborhood. And it started by working with the local community members, trying to talk to them about how they can become ambassadors of peace in their uh- own neighborhood. And, and that's what we, what we used to spend our time on. 
I'd, re- I'd really appreciate it if you could elaborate on something. I think that would be really interesting to the listeners yeah. who are engaging maybe in whether from an advocacy group or within that professional yeah. space. So, you know, I'd love to hear some of those practical so examples. I was, I was actually trained by Ceasefire, which is a, a US-based organization, the University of Chicago in, in, in the US, but also they have a program here in Cape Town, actually, uh, at Hanover Park. Uh, but I worked with them when for the work in Iraq. We worked in southern Iraq, and we worked on gang violence. And we, basically, what we did, we we mapped the different types of violence, and we we realized we had political violence, which was uh, more politically motivated. We had uh, theft and crime, but we also had m- gang violence, gangs basically retaliating against each other. Uh, and that was where the largest numbers of homicides or crime used to happen because of the retaliation. So we worked, we divided the city into the small neighborhoods. We worked with every neighborhood with uh, primary, we started working with the local leaders. We spent about six months of training with them, defining what is violence, where, what, and they, they started, they came to start thinking about it as something very normal. And it's like, oh yeah, of course, if, if, you, if that person is going to kill your cousin, you have to retaliate. Okay. And so we spent a lot of time working with them on changing that mentality and, and basically telling them, well, a lot of people are dying from that. And what is the outcome of that? And what will happen in three months? What will happen in three years? Do you want that outcome? Do you want to live in a constant, live a, in a constant life of fear? So we, we had that training, it wasn't continuous, we would do like a session every week, where bit by bit they start coming up with solution where they're saying, okay, so we have to create our own conflict resolution mechanisms to interfere in those episodes of violence before they become bigger. So mm. we're, not gonna, we're not gonna prevent the killing number one that has happened, but we're gonna prevent the 10 or 20 that will happen after that through our conflict resolution mechanisms. So basically, we've called them ambassadors of peace. In each neighborhood, you have two, three people. They basically, their role is to sit down and monitor and see what is the, where is the violent, where are the crime, or where is the crime happening, where is the homicide happening. And, and once they hear about it, they go and investigate who did it, because they are community members, they're not police, they know Understood. who did it, yeah, and they understand. understand. The difference, the difference, yeah. And then they go and they start mediating. Doing the doing the job doing as a community member as a community exactly and because in place like Iraq you have a lot of tribal allegiances so yeah. they have built a lot of relationship also with the tribes so the tr- if the, the he- community the chief, member chief so exactly because if the community member cannot do it then they go to the tribes and the tribe can actually start uh, mediating, mediating yeah. and with that we we also use then the community members to keep mapping the hotspots of violent incidents. Physically mapping these things? So physically we sit down with them, like they, they keep a record, and right. then every two weeks we sit down with them and we put it on the map to see what's happening where, and then we digitize it and we put it on an open platform. So people can see that actually from like two months ago, violence was, was higher now it has reduced. Sure. So it's impacting the perception because violence is not only committing the act but also the perception of it in honduras i can't have the numbers exact in my in my head right now but there was a national policy 
the government had done a national pulse strategy on violence prevention, worked on violence prevention for about five years. Actually, crime has been reduced, but the perception of the viol of violence increased because people never saw, Understood. understood okay. that it was never communicated to them. And so violence is a lived experience and it's actually also the, the actual crime that has happened. So that that was the, the experience in Iraq and um and yeah. Because you sort of st stitching together then the spatial dimension, the the, the, the temporal, the time, yes, the, exactly. and, and, and then the qualities of what exactly went down. So yeah. these three different dimensions are being put into that. Space. Yes, Fasc exactly. Fascinating. And the people. You always need to understand that it needs to be a community people centered approach because they are the ones who tell you what happened, what didn't happen. Actually, yesterday, when we went to Kailija and the fact that all the lights were stolen in that pedestrian room, and I said, oh, that's interesting. When were they stolen? And somebody said, oh, the day they, they were put. Commissioned. Commissioned. And I said, oh, that's definitely an inside job because you know, that because just from working with the communities, you know from them that Oh, actually, when something is that organized within a small community, Clinical. it's happening there. Clinical, yeah. So then the, the, the biggest thing becomes, what can you do with the community to prevent that from happening? Okay. So it becomes, how do, you make, the value almost within that how do you make that a community asset Understood. in order for them to protect it? And, and we have a lot of also good examples of that. What's been very interesting to me is to learn about this idea of the, of partnerships, partnerships mm. within communities. We heard about some of that yesterday, and everything that I think you're talking about in terms of your experiences yeah. elsewhere um, comes down to localized or, or, or scaling up in those ter in terms of those partnerships. What what, what do you think? Wor what has worked best in your experience? Is it when is it when government comes and says, "Come, let's partner," or is it sort of the reverse of where the community says? How do we partner with a series of, mm. of um, uh, uh, bodies who can help us to, to, to make things better for ourselves? Interested maybe as a perspective that you have on that. The, this is a very, very, very interesting question because I, at the World Bank, I only work on partnerships. And uh, it's not partnerships, uh, partnerships for development, I should say. Uh, what we call them community-driven development. So the World Bank, we work usually with the government. We provide loans to the government. This is, could be seen as positive, as negative, that we work with governments. A lot of different people perceive it differently. I think it's a good thing because we can actually create some change within the national government. So what I work on is I work with the governments on how they can partner with the local communities so the local communities can be responsible for their own local development. So this is what's called community-driven development where the government is taking a loan from the World Bank or we're taking a grant or whatever that goes. Um, and through and, and working within a specific region and passing on those, passing on grants to the communities so the communities can plan, execute, and monitor their own development projects in their own living environment. In their own space. And so this is a partnership that the bank is creating, uh, is or the bank is the World Bank is is supporting, where the communities can become an agent in that, and uh, uh, I should say not only an agent but a responsible, directly involved agent 
in the development process that they are going through. So they don't only receive it, but they have a say in it. They also execute it and they also monitor it. Fascinating. I mean, it's interesting that a lot of your work has obviously been with the communities and um, almost entrenching yourself in that space, mm. places which are, are, are driven with conflict. Um, how do you go about keeping yourself uh, safe, <laughs> safe and sane? Um, you know, it, 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 how, how do you manage that, that, that space? Um, a, lot of, a lot of friends will tell you I don't manage that very well, but I, I think I do, I do. Um, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say how. Uh, I think I do because I get a lot of enjoyment from my work. Like to be able to um, work with the communities, um, and we work with the World Bank. We work with large-scale communities. We're not working with one on two. We're working nationally. Broadly, we're working like we work on a national level. So you're having program, big programs, right? But to be able to, even though I I feel sometimes removed, I always make it a point to go visit one or two or three areas where we work to see the impact and and what we're able to do for those communities those who have had years and decades of no water and suddenly they have water years and decades of no electricity no roads trash um that they are actually they feel like implicated in the government decisions because they are saying telling the government what they want and the Mm -hmm. government is giving them money for it that kind of feedback i cannot quantify it in money nor in anything it's intrinsic that, value that's value, right? that's that's what that always keeps me going that without doubt is the main source that I, I i love what i do uh but also at the same time it's that there's something i i, I studied i studied economics then i did my PhD in conflict studies uh, but during my PhD, we took a course on how to heal the peace, um, the peacemaker, because you we you hear a lot of stories about people who have been burned out just because of years and years in working conflict affected contexts, um, and the question becomes how how do you heal the the people who work there? I I, I don't have a perfect formula. I still burn out a lot, but. Uh, I know it's a discussion. I know a lot of people uh, think about it. A lot of people burn out because of the bureaucracies. A lot of people burn out because they feel there's no hope with with national policies. But when you go see what the communities are doing, where they have no choice to, to be hopeless, they have to survive, they have to provide. And every day they wake up with with thinking of probably today I'll have an opportunity. What a privileged position can I be and better than thinking about how can I provide them with opportunity. Whilst you're talking talking about healing, the whole question of reconciliation in that yeah. space, and I think of South Africa in a very particular way with the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, the TRC. Um, I've got to ask you, as somebody who deals in this space, any any thoughts about the TRC? Um, not in terms of you know, how it was, but in terms of a, a method of trying to find. Uh, peace and, and and healing within a space. I think it was also tried in in Ireland uh, yeah. during the conflict there, and I think South Africa had a role. So maybe just some thoughts before you know, as as we move towards a summary uh, and a conclusion. Maybe some thoughts on the TRC. I I just from an observer, a far observer. I don't want to. I'm not gonna put any qualitative or or opinions, but from an observer's point of view, 
this was just the the epitome of restorative justice in my opinion um, that to think about it's not only about putting people in prison it's not about punishment but it's about how do we live together because life is going to move on and you want to make sure that nothing like this will happen in the future so how do we live together we have to listen to each other we have to listen to the victims we have to know what happened but also we need it's not to forget but to, to forgive basically if forgiveness can be possible and for the for not for yourself but for the generation that will come after you and so for me has i've always been very much um intrigued interested curious about the trc have read a lot of books about it have watched a lot of documentaries about it um, every time I come here, I ask people about what was their perception of, uh, during the TRC period. I know that a lot of people, some people have negative, have positive comments about it, have different ways of how it could have happened. The concept, the fact that it happened, that is what is fascinating, that this country was able to find the solution on how to not think about only punishment, but how to heal as a nation and how do we think about a prosperous future. And and for me, that is the main takeaway of the TRC. Jana, I, want, I will really want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your very busy uh, diary and commitments. Um, you were feverishly working away uh, before we had this uh, meeting. I think your day sort of starts now, actually, yes. <laughs> in, terms of your, in terms of your world clock. So for you to take uh, a half an hour to spend uh, with uh, with myself uh, and reflecting on your travels and your experiences, it, it, I really want to thank you very, very much. A pleasure. That's my pleasure. Pleasure is mine because you, you were talking about healing the how do you keep yourself sane. This is one of them. I have to stop and, and reflect and... and uh, and, and and laugh for a little bit, no? <laughs> well, I've certainly enjoyed it. You, you had some very uh, fun and amusing stories that we shared yesterday. Uh, perhaps the next time we come back, we can <laughs> reflect on some of those lighter moments. But for now, I want to wish you a very pleasant and enjoyable stay with us for the rest of your time here in Thank South Africa. You. Travel safely, and we look forward to catching up with you next time you're in uh, South Africa. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Get involved, get informed, most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at TalkingTransfo and the number one. That's TalkingTransfo1. Talking Transformations music, kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.